best digital business models will break down for you how tech companies make money, what value propositions they offer, why they are successful, and what they're doing next. From Amazon, Google, Facebook, and many others, the Digital Business Models Podcast will give you the top business education you need to understand the digital business world. Whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or wanting to be an entrepreneur, the Digital Business Models Podcast is your go-to place for your business education. For today's session, uh, I have the pleasure to have with us Sangeet Paul uh, Chadri, which is uh, the best-selling author of Platform Revolution and plat- uh, author of Platform Scale. Uh, Sangeet is also the young global leader at the World Economic Forum and founder at uh, Platform Mission Labs and keynote speaker. Thanks a lot for joining us, Sangeet. Thank you, Gennaro. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. Yep, I'd love to start uh, from you. So what uh, actually drove you to, to this research into the, the platform uh, business models? So I actually got into platform business models uh, quite some time back. I first uh, started thinking about platforms back in 2006, 2007, uh, when I was working at Yahoo and looking at new business models that we were investing in. And one of the things that I was looking at was Alibaba. And I, I realized when I looked at Alibaba back then that the way Alibaba thought of its business model was fundamentally different from the way Yahoo thought of its business model, which was uh, a very uh, linear way of, you know, aggregate audience and serve them the ads. Uh, and that's what kind of got me thinking about what exactly uh, was different about how Alibaba thought about this. I then moved on to a com- company called Intuit and uh, there started uh, looking at how platform business models uh, were fundamentally different from traditional software companies. And this was back in 2008 when, you know, data was still something that we had not figured out how to monetize. So a lot of these ideas were still pretty nascent at that point, but sometime around 2011 or so, I I condensed a lot of this thinking um, into uh, this shift from pipelines to platforms that essentially businesses were moving from the traditional linear business models, which I called pipelines to these new business models, which are platforms. And back in 2010, 2011, we had, you know, Uber, Airbnb, Facebook, Google, but we did not really see this as something much bigger than a Silicon Valley thing. Today we see this as applying to everything. But when I, when I came up with this formulation back around that time, I, uh, instantly saw that this could be applied across industries. This was a fundamentally new way of thinking about how the uh, how economic interactions can be structured, and that's what really got uh, me excited. I then uh, quit my job, uh, started doing this full time, collaborated with a group at MIT. We brought out a book, uh, did a range of research, and ever since then, it's been uh, it's you know it's spread uh, across uh, industries, across governments. Uh, and my work spans, you know, both helping businesses move in this direction, but also helping countries regulate platforms and come up with strategies to uh, compete in the platform economy. So that's that's kind of an, a brief overview of, uh, you know, my journey. Yeah, interesting, interesting story. And uh, I'd love to start, uh, like, from the end, meaning uh, one thing that happened, of course, is that uh, the, the nature of competition has changed, especially in the last two decades. So um, how do you think uh, this has, uh, how do you think like the platform business models have impacted the, the strategy world? Right. So uh, the nature, uh, the nature of competition has changed partly because the resources on the basis of which we compete 
has changed, right? And uh, uh, the big shift that that has really happened was that uh, the resources on which we used to compete in the traditional industrial economy were supply side resources that the company controlled either through ownership or through some form of contractual ownership, even if it was not within the boundaries of the company, of the firm. Uh, what's changed is that as the world becomes more connected, whether you own the resource or not is secondary, whether you can understand the resource and allocate the resource is becoming the primary uh, advantage. And so data is becoming a very important asset because data helps you to uh, identify, understand, and allocate resources, and then, in effect, control market interactions around that resource. In, in, in the traditional world, you had to control the resource to control those market interactions, but now you can just control those market interactions by managing data. And that is fundamentally what has changed, because what uh, then uh, changes is that your competitive advantage is no longer constrained by what you have in-house. It can be any uh, resource around which you can gather data and which way you can aggregate and learn from that data and manage interactions around that resource. And so because of this, fundamentally how companies compete have changed. Companies still compete because of access to and uh, access to resources and managing interactions around those resources. But now that can be done without actually owning those resources that can be done through data. And that is the fundamentally the biggest shift that has happened. And this leads to a second factor that when you don't own the resources, you can benefit from network effects because those resources lie outside your firm. And as you encourage more interactions around those resources, as third parties bring in their resources, you can then create a network of demand. And as more demand comes in, even more third parties come in with their resources. And that is what a network effect is. So if you think of network effects, uh, you know, fundamentally hotels used to uh, control the rooms that they would build, the rooms that they would service, but Airbnb does not really control those resources in the same way. And this is not to say that asset ownership is going away. Platforms will also continue to own the most critical assets that help them to compete. So if you look at Amazon, Amazon has to own the warehousing system because that is the critical asset that its ecosystem of third-party merchants need from it. And so I'm not trying to say that resources are going to go away, but what's changing is that you can benefit from resources that you do not control internally because you can now manage them through data. So it's a combination of digitization of resources coupled with network effects that is fundamentally changing how competition works. Very interesting. So like in the past, we, from the strategic standpoint, we would use a framework more like the five forces um, mm -hmm. What would we need to add on this framework or do we need a different framework to actually assess the nature of competition right now when it comes to platforms? So that's a very interesting question because uh, one thing that does change is that to assess the nature of competition, we also need to understand the nature of participation and collaboration because when you do not compete based on your internal resources and your internal workforce only, you compete based on external resources and labor, then you need to think about what are the right incentives for these external parties to participate. So the way you think about competition now, you need to start first of all with identifying what are the incentives for external producers and consumers to participate in my business model. That is the first step. 
Now, if you think of that question, that question is, is not a, a question about competition, but it's not too different from a question about how do, do we procure uh, the resources on the basis of which we compete, which was what a traditional company would ask. So today, when you look at competition, the first thing you need to think about is economic incentives for ecosystem participants. The second thing you need to think about is control points. Once ecosystem participants participate, what are the few factors that enable you to establish control over this ecosystem, right? And this is where, again, if I take the Amazon warehousing example, Amazon creates incentives for users to come in. It provides them prime. Uh, it provides, uh, you know, tools to the merchants. But what helps it to hold both these sites together is the warehousing network. The warehousing network enables two-day delivery through Amazon Prime, and it enables fulfillment by Amazon for third-party merchants who now don't need to do the fulfillment themselves. So the control point is the warehousing network. So identifying the control point is the next important thing that you need to do once you've created the incentives. And the third thing is to think about scaling factors. What are the mechanisms by which your platform will scale? One scaling factor is uh, what I talked about in the form of network effects. A second scaling factor is a learning effect, which today we think of as uh, machine learning based on the more data you capture, the more you learn about interactions. So learning effects help you learn what is happening in the ma market. So these are two important scaling factors that we need to think about when we think competitive advantage. So to me, it's these three things uh, that you need to think about. Start with incentives, create a control point, and then figure out how you scale both of these things through scaling factors. Yep, uh, that's, uh, that's very clear to me. And, um, you know, one, one thing that um, I noticed, especially in the, in the startup world, is that uh, many companies uh, try to call themselves a platform, even though, um, you know, and, and I can understand that because when you, when you, when you have a company which becomes uh, sort of a, like, let's say a website that becomes a, a platform, then of course you can claim that your company is worth many times over because of course you have the chance to create uh, competitive advantages through, as you said, like network effects or like learning uh, effects and so forth. So w what are the key differences then from, from what you call a, a, a pipeline and a platform uh, business model? Well, there are three key differences between the pipeline and the platform business model. And uh, the, the first is that, uh, you know, a, a pipeline business model is just focused on serving its customers, its end consumers. A platform business model has to serve both sides, both uh, contributors and producers in the business and end consumers. So one test that you need to look at is, do you actually have external parties contributing to your business model? If, if you don't, then you... you there is no uh, reason to call it a platform because the platform has to have external participation, external contribution. Uh, the second uh, key difference is uh, whether you need to control the assets, as I mentioned internally, or whether you can manage interactions around assets and around resources, around users who are external to your system. So that is where... Uh, it, you, the key difference comes in. So if you were, if you were a staffing company or the recruitment company, uh, you would uh, control the, uh, the temporary, uh, the, the temp staffing people you would provide. But if you look at freelancing platforms like Upwork, they don't control those resources internally. They just connect them to the client over the platform. Uh, and similarly, you can apply that to the hotel example I gave and to a whole range of other examples. So that is the key difference. Where does the assets uh, sit? And do you, uh, 
you could yourself control assets. You don't have to be asset light. But do you benefit from assets outside your system? That's the key part. And the third element is that uh, a pipeline business is very focused on product or service delivery. It's very focused on ensuring that the product is great. It's constantly shipping. A platform business, the metrics it tracks are not internal. The metrics it tracks are about how third parties are delivering products and services to the platform. Are they increasing their participation on the platform? So there's a big difference in the kind of metrics you track as well. So those are the key differences between a platform and a pipeline. Yep, interesting. So um, are there any metrics that uh, we want to look for when, when we're actually building up a platform business model? If, if so, like, uh, what are some of those uh, metrics that uh, we need to track? The, the metrics that you should not be tracking are just the size of your user base or just the number of users who are coming on board. Because very often we think that platforms are about millions and billions of users. And so we think that the proof of the platform is in the number of users coming on board. But actually, that's not true. Uh, what's important when you're tracking, uh, uh, when you're building a platform is to track what is the rate at which you are creating successful interactions. So identifying that is the key metric. So let's take an example. If you launch uh, a ride hailing platform like Uber in a new city, and if somebody picks up their phone, uh, a user picks up their phone and they open the app and they see no taxi available, that is uh, a failure of a market interaction that you should be supporting. So tracking what is the success rate, what is the failure rate of market interactions is one critical part. And you need to minimize that failure uh, in market interactions. And that is the reason why you know, Uber then translates it into metrics for the drivers, because drivers then are required to have a minimum acceptance rate. If they get a certain number of requests for uh, new rides, they cannot reject more than 10% of those requests. And that is to eventually serve the overall metric of successful interactions. So metrics which focus on interactions are very critical to building platform businesses. Uh, a second metric that's very important is metrics that focus on scaling. How is the ecosystem scaling around you? Uh, is, is the participation of a user increasing over time? So think of Instagram. If a new user comes on board and they set up 20 photos in the first month, uh, but they then move on to set up around 100 photos in the fifth month, that means that over time, their participation on the platform has increased. So look for indicators that show that the producers on your platform are increasing participation and, and so are the consumers. So those are the key metrics that are important when you're running a platform business. Interesting. And uh, it's very important, I think, to highlight, as you said, that uh, uh, which is a misconception that the platform business model is not about the number of users and you don't have to, be, to have like millions of billions of users to, no. to build up a platform business model, but it's really about uh, interactions. I think it's very Mm, uh, a, a very important highlight, which also uh, you know makes us uh, understand the difference probably between uh, a pipeline and, and, and a platform uh, business model. Um, and you know, as uh, you mentioned before, one of the key aspects of a platform business model uh, is uh, is the network uh, effect. Now, um, on my end, sometimes I, I may get confused as well when it comes to. Uh, looking at the network effect also as, as a sort of, of a growth uh, tool. I mean, is there a difference uh, between uh, growth tools in the platform business models and uh, actually network effects? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question because uh, there's a common misconception that people have between 
two things that sound very similar. Uh, one is called network effects and the other is called virality or viral effects. So when you think about, you know, something going viral, people think of, of that also as a network effect. Now, there's a fundamental difference. Uh, virality or a viral effect is a phenomenon when the more people use your, your <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> virality is a phenomenon where the more people use your product or service, the more they spread the message about it. So if I take a few examples, the more I use uh, Gmail, the more other people see that I'm getting, uh, you know, that, that they're receiving uh, emails from Gmail. Um, and, and the more they may want to switch towards Gmail over time, uh, or the more you see f- uh, initially, the more you would see photos from Instagram on Facebook, the more you would uh, be exposed to Instagram. Uh, so this is an example of virality where when you use the product, you spread the product externally to other parties. Network effects is w- that more people using the platform create more value for others using the platform. And so there's a difference. Network effects create value on the platform, viral effects spread the word about the platform or the product externally, right? So network effects, uh, an example is the more uh, users who are, the more uh, hosts who are setting up listings on Airbnb, the more choice there is for travelers. Now that's a network effect. Uh, Or take the example of YouTube. The more videos that are being set up on YouTube, the more choice I have as a viewer to view things on YouTube. Now, if I take a video from YouTube and embed it on Facebook, that's not a network effect. That's a viral effect. That is a growth tool. It's a mechanism to grow YouTube because people from Facebook then come back to YouTube. So a viral effect is a growth tool that brings external users back to the platform, whereas a network effect increases the value on the platform, just like adding more and more YouTubes, uh, more and more videos onto YouTube. Yeah, thanks a lot for clarifying that. Uh, I think it's uh, it's uh, an extremely important point because there is a lot of uh, confusion around that. So, um, what are what are some of the the, the main kinds of uh, network effects that uh, we want to look at when uh, developing a, a platform a business model? So this this does get a little theoretical, but there are many different ways in which you should think about network effects. Um, the first is what is called a direct network effect, which is uh, users like you, the more they use the uh, a particular uh, tool or service or platform, the more value you get out of it. So if you think of the telephone that has a direct network effects, uh, effect, everybody else who uses the telephone, uh, the more people using the telephone, the more valuable it becomes. Uh, there's uh, a second thing, which is uh, a, a cross-sided network effect uh, where you have or two-sided network effect where the more producers you have on a platform, the more consumers are attracted and the more consumers you have, the more producers are attracted. So the more hosts on Airbnb, the more value for, uh, you know, travelers. Uh, It's interesting to note that sometimes uh, platforms which have this two-sided network effect actually have a negative direct network effect. So if you look at hosts, the more hosts there are in a particular city, Uh, the more competition there is for users among those hosts. And so the direct network effect of having other hosts is negative, but the cross-sided network effect uh, or the two-sided network effect of having other travelers is positive. So it's important to kind of think through these uh, factors. There are many other nuances around this. Uh, There's uh, the idea of a local network effect where uh, more users using a platform do not add value unless they are directly connected to you. So think of Facebook you really get value out of the users who you are directly connected to and the users they are directly connected to. 
the same thing applies to WhatsApp. So that those are direct network effects and uh, those are uh, local network effects. And then there are different variations of uh, uh, utilities that have network effects to different degrees. So if you look at technical standards, they also have a, have a network effect. So if you look at a standard like the DVD standard or the CD standard, the more um, manufacturers who uh, applied that standard, the more movie houses who then adopted that standard, uh, the more uh, users would then benefit from that standard. So standards typically uh, manifest network effects in much more complex B2B uh, industry level ecosystems. So these are some of the ways in which you, you know, you think about network effects. There's a, there's a lot that's been written about 10 or 15 or 13 different types of network effects, but fundamentally the most important thing to understand is that there's a difference between who is creating value, whether it's users who are just like you or users who are consuming from you or users who you are consuming from. That's the single biggest, uh, the one-sided versus two-sided network effect is the single biggest uh, difference to look at. Uh, apart from that, a couple of other things to look at are strength of the network effect. What exactly leads to a stronger network effect? And does the network effect stop increasing after a certain point? So if you look at Uber, for example, there is potentially some level of a network effect initially where the more drivers come in, the more likely it is that you find a ride. But beyond a point, increasing the number of drivers does not improve your experience. Uh, once you reach a certain level of waiting time beyond that, uh, more drivers coming in, in a particular city does not improve your waiting time any further. And so the the network effect, the value of it kind of, uh, uh, you know, does not increase beyond a certain level. But there are others, uh, platforms which enable the long tail like eBay, where as you keep on adding more and more varieties of sellers, you keep uh, creating more and more choice. And so you need to think about at what point the value of the network effect is leveling out or whether it's still going beyond that point. That's, that's a critical thing to think about. Yep. Thanks. Thanks a lot for, for this uh, clarification. And I think, as you mentioned, it's also very important to understand that there are not just, uh, you know, positive network effects. There are also uh, negative network effects. Um, what, what is there like a, an example that comes to mind uh, when it comes to, to negative network effects? So a negative network effect essentially means that the more uh, the network grows, the value for the users goes down. And uh, in the traditional world, this used to be called congestion. So the more people using the, you know, the highway system, the more traffic jams you end up in, or the more people in a room, uh, the less likely it is to have good, decent conversation just because it gets crowded, but also because it, uh, you know, everybody's talking too loudly. And so you can't, uh, here and you can't meet the right person within that room. So we understand congestion in uh, traditional terms because uh, in, uh, you know, in the traditional world, we had uh, networks that were limited by scale. So the number of uh, the, the scale of uh, a highway network or the total scale of uh, uh, roads in a certain city or the total size of a room or of a conference hall, these are all limited. But in the online world, uh, in the digital world, the scale, the scale limitations of the underlying infrastructure go away. And that is why we start talking more about positive network effects. But negative network effects come up even in the online world, not so much 
because of scale limitations, but because of limitations in quality management or curation. Because what happens is the more users come on board, the more difficult it becomes to manage quality of the interactions. So unless you set up curation mechanisms up front, it becomes difficult to ensure that the quality is managed in a consistent basis as you move forward and uh, as you scale the network even further. And this is where negative network effects become important uh, because the more users that keep coming on board, if your quality control mechanisms are not in place and more importantly are not scaling at the rate of the network, then the quality dip dips and then people start seeing less value and start leaving the network. And this happens from time to time uh, on various kinds of networks. And that's the negative network effect that we see. So it's important to make the distinction between congestion that happens because of scale limitations and noise that happens because of curation limitations. So those are some ways in which negative network effects manifest. Yep, uh, very interesting. And um, when you launch a, a platform a business model, uh, there is a sort of a dilemma, which is the, the chicken and egg, egg dilemma. Um, I mean, uh, why, why is that important? Why is it important to understand that and how you can actually uh, sort of pass uh, through that? The chicken and egg dilemma happens because network effects essentially mean that the value is being created by your users. So when there are no users, there is no value. So then you have this chicken and egg. If there are no producers of value on your platform, consumers won't come. And if consumers don't come, producers don't want to come. So who do you get first? The chicken or the egg, the producer or the consumer, right? That is the key dilemma that, that comes up. And uh, this is... Um, a classic dilemma that is faced by all platforms which rely on the ecosystem to create value. And there are many different ways of solving the chicken and egg problem. And I uh, actually go into this in a lot of detail in my books as well as in my online course uh, around platforms. And uh, there are many different ways in which this dilemma manifests itself. But fundamentally, there are two ways in which you solve this. Uh, the first way to solve it is that you create some value in your platform, even without the networks. So you create some value within the tools and the software itself. Um, an example of this is OpenTable. So OpenTable today is a network that connects restaurants with consumers, but initially it launched as a restaurant management software, which could work even if consumers were not on board. So the restaurants would still find value in using it. So the first model is to create some value even without the network. And the second key way is to ensure that you launch the platform in a high activity market. So think of Facebook launching as a closed system inside Harvard University, high activity, everybody knew each other, everybody came on Facebook and started interacting. Think of Twitter launching at South by Southwest. Uh, and, uh, you know, people started tweeting about the conference and everybody else saw the tweets. So there was a lot of interaction. Uh, think of PayPal launching as a payment mechanism on eBay where transactions were already happening. They just needed a payment mechanism. So successful platforms always find these high uh, hubs of activity, whether they are other platforms as PayPal with eBay or whether they are physical locations like Facebook or whether they are events like Twitter, uh, you know, all of them always look to find these high activity, high concentration of activity as an initial uh, way to kickstart the network effect. Yep. And um, for, for someone who is starting today uh, to build up a platform, uh, where should uh, they start? I mean, uh, what, what kind of suggestions do you have for them? 
Well, so, so the basics of business do not change. You need to start with a clear user pain point. Uh, you don't build a platform because it's a good thing to build or because that's, with, that's the way business is headed or because they are attracting high valuations. You start with a user pain point. That is the starting point. And you try to see what is the best way of solving that user pain point. And in doing that, you might realize that you need a platform model to solve the user pain point. So the way to build a platform, again, starts with the user pain point itself. And then there might be many ways of solving it and a platform might be one way of doing it. Now, once you've got into a point where you realize that a platform is the right way to do it, then you need to figure out who are you primarily solving this problem for? Is it the consumer side or the producer side? So if you ask me, um, uh, Facebook is primarily solving a problem for the users, not for the brands. The brands come on board later. The media companies come on board later. The advertisers come on board later. So the primary user in that case is the consumer. But if you look at OpenTable, I would argue that the primary problem is being solved for the restaurant because it is the restaurant management, seating management, and then as as an additional kicker, uh, the restaurants get connected to the user as well. So always look for who is the primary uh, uh, party you're solving the problem for. And then try to focus on uniquely solving that problem, especially well for that primary party first before you start optimizing the experience of the secondary party. Uh, That is broadly how I would think about... uh, you know, solving this uh, or getting started because you need to balance incentives on an ongoing basis. But initially you need to know for sure which side producer or consumer is driving value creation. In the case of Facebook, consumers drive engagement and data creation. In the case of OpenTable, the restaurants create the data about which seats are available. So who is driving that value creation on your platform? You need to uniquely identify that before you set about solving this problem. Yep, and of course, if the platform business model can add even more value to the users, then of course you go with it. Otherwise, you can also live up with 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 the pipeline or with a more uh, traditional uh, linear uh, business model. Um, on on your end, uh, what's next? I mean, um, are you uh, working on uh, some other research? Do you see the future uh, still going for for many years toward the platform business models, or there will be uh, something changing on the horizon? So I look at uh, so I look at my work in terms of two uh, models in terms of uh, you know what's next to be researched, but also how can I have impact with the work that I'm doing. Uh, in terms of research, I'm looking at uh, a few specific uh, elements. I'm looking more at antitrust, just because I also get asked a lot more of those questions around how to think about uh, monopoly and antitrust in the case of platforms. The second thing I'm looking at is. Uh, global trade how does trade change and how do countries compete in a platform economy what does uh, uh, what will global trade look like when the world moves towards platforms and ecosystems and i work with quite a few countries helping them with their trade strategy uh, the third thing i'm looking at is uh, you know b2b ecosystems what does it look like how is that different from the b2c examples we talked about over here what does it mean to create a logistics ecosystem or uh, a financial services ecosystem to serve the unbanked or, or how do you change the, the way clinical research and clinical trials are conducted by pharmaceutical companies today? How do you think of that in a platform economy? So I'm looking a, a, a lot at uh, 
understanding competition, commoditization, new business models, further up the supply chain. Now, in terms of the impact of all of this, there are different ways in which uh, I've been scaling my work. I, uh, um, I've done a lot of advisory work, uh, high-level advisory work with companies and governments. I scale a lot of the, uh, you know, I try to scale it further through my writing, but also uh, uh, through uh, creating educational products, uh, which I license to firms. And then I also uh, uh, have been, uh, you know, investing uh, and creating ventures for corporates uh, who are looking to build and compete in this platform economy. So it's a combination of different models through which I try to apply and scale the impact of what I work on. Also, uh, Sangeet, uh, what kind of resources? I mean, do you have a, a place where people can uh, get started with platform business model? Um, where, where, where would this be? And uh, you know, if you have any suggestion, um, let us know. Yeah, so I've uh, um, so I've I've created quite a lot of resources on this topic. Uh, I've written two books, Platform Revolution and Platform Scale, which have both been bestsellers. So they are both uh, good starting points to uh, understand platform business models. Uh, you also have my website, platformthinkinglabs.com, where uh, there is a lot of, uh, uh, there are a lot of free resources, uh, including different articles. Uh, there are videos on YouTube as well. And uh, I've uh, launched uh, uh, a an enterprise course, which uh, essentially enterprises uh, license uh, to uh, to have their entire uh, teams learn about platform business models. So if you're working at a company and if you need to understand or have your whole team understand different aspects of platform business models, uh, that's a course that you could consider uh, looking at as well. Yep. Thanks a lot, uh, Sangeet. It was, it was a pleasure uh, having you and you clarified a lot of very important points for us. And really, to anyone uh, listening, uh, the, the both books like Platform Scale and Platform Revolution are must-read to, to, to understand uh, you know, the, the, the nature of a platform business model. Thanks again, Sangeet, for joining me for this conversation. Thank you, Gennaro. Really good talking to you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Digital Business Models Podcast, created by 4WeekMBA.com, the leading source of business insights for those wanting to become digital entrepreneurs. Go to 4WeekMBA.com for more top-tier business education.